Excellent. Okay. Well, let's take our Bibles this evening. Let's dive right into it, going to the book of Galatians this evening, okay? Galatians chapter 2 tonight is where we'll be. Galatians chapter 2, as we're studying through this wonderful book of the Bible. And as we get back to this book this evening, I do want you to keep in mind the overall uh, bird's eye view, if you will, of this book in mind. It helps us when you get the overall context in mind. It helps us to understand each verse a little better, each chapter a little better, all right? So keep this in mind, that Paul is writing this book, this letter, to the churches in the region of Galatia. Remember, multiple churches, multiple Christians. And, but he's writing to these churches and these believers for this main reason. He is writing because false teachers called Judaizers have began to creep into this region and therefore creep into these churches and begin to teach a false gospel. And it is this false gospel, as Paul said it, another gospel, uh, this false gospel of adding works to the finished work of Jesus Christ. You see, they were adding rituals and rules to the gospel, to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And according to them, if you didn't follow the rituals and rules, then you truly couldn't truly be saved. So in teaching this false gospel, these false teachers were perverting the pure and true gospel of Christ. And in doing so, they're causing great chaos in the hearts and minds of God's people. So Paul, Paul, with the uh, soldier-like spirit, sits down lovingly, passionately, and yet still very sternly and picks up his pen and declares and defends the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the bird's eye view of this book. Again, keep all that in mind as we look verse by verse, chapter by chapter through this book of the Bible. All right, so let's continue our study. We'll be in Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to finish this up where we started last Wednesday. And as we do, as we come to verse 11 in just a moment, uh, keep in mind Paul is reminding the Galatian believers of a time when he himself was in Antioch, all right? Now remember, Antioch is an important place in the Bible, important place in church history, because it's here, uh, here in Antioch, that a revival would have broken out among the Gentiles, and many Gentiles were saved. And afterwards, uh, you would have here in Antioch would be a hub for the gospel in this area of the world. It's even out of Antioch that Paul and other missionaries would be sent out on different missionary journeys to plant churches around different cities in this area of the world. But as he comes to Antioch, he meets up, Paul that is, meets up with these two guys, especially this one in particular, but Peter and Barnabas. And as he meets with these guys at Antioch, here comes those Judaizers soon behind them, all right? So Paul's talking of this, of this time, this event, when he's writing to the Galatians, and he writes this. Look at it with me, Galatians chapter 2, verse number 11. Galatians 2, starting at verse number 11, and we'll read down through the rest of the chapter. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I was stood him to the face, because he was be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles, but when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dis disassembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, 
that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, it's therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. And verse number 20, probably the most famous verse in all of Galatians, it says this, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. So as we began to look at this last Wednesday, we took note of this first thing, all right? We took note of Peter's fear, okay? Just a quick recap of this point and of this, of this uh, message. But it was Peter's fear. This fear wasn't the fear of the Lord, but rather it was the fear of man. And we took note what the Bible says about that kind of fear in Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 25. The fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be saved. But Peter had a fear of man. He feared those, as the Bible says in verse 12, those that were of their circumcision. And if you remember last time, we find out and took note that when we have a fear of man, it can cause us to have and do some very uh, silly things when we have that kind of fear. And we took note from the life of Peter here in this context what that kind of fear gave to him. And it made him do this. Number one, it made him compromise, verse number 12. It made him compromise. And be reminded, when he compromised, Peter knew what was right and what was wrong. He knew that it was okay to eat with the Gentiles, even though those of the circumcision told them it was not. Because again, following the law, dietary restrictions, that kind of thing. But Peter was not following that law to the T while he was with the Gentiles. But Peter knew it was okay that he could eat with them, fellowship with them, didn't have to consider them as second-class great citizens, all right, or, or second-class uh, Christians, if you will. He could eat with them. It was perfectly fine. Yet because of fear of man, Peter compromised on this truth. And then we took note of this. Because of fear of man, we saw that his fear, Peter's fear, was also contagious. Verse 13. It is there we find a very famous individual in Scripture that many, including myself, I really like this guy. I like him a lot. We need more people in our churches by the name Barnabas, all right? Not just by that name, but by that character, okay? But we find Barnabas here, he himself also, the Bible says, withdrew and separated with Peter. He himself too backed off from the Gentile believers, backed off from those in Antioch. He himself began to do the same thing Peter was doing, fearing man, causing him to compromise. Listen, this kind of fear is very contagious because Barnabas followed that same steps of Peter. Then we saw this. The fear of man, especially as we looked at Peter here, also caused confusion. And you can see that in verse 14. But I can only imagine, can only imagine the confusion that this, that this, that took place in the uh, church here in Antioch and especially among the believers, the Gentile believers in Antioch that took place, the confusion took place in the hearts and minds of these people. Because it was these folks that took Peter in that learned of Peter, that looked up to Peter, that grew in grace and knowledge of the Lord through the teaching and preaching of Peter and other apostles. And now all of a sudden, because of these strangers, these, these are the circumcision come from Jerusalem, all of a sudden they are now in the same room or now in the same area and same church. All of a sudden these Gentiles are now not good enough for Peter. All of a sudden they're now too dirty to be around. Why? 
Because Peter feared how this fellowshipping with the Gentile believers looked to the Judaizers. He feared man. He feared the opinion of the brethren more than the truth of God. No doubt this caused great confusion to the Gentile believers and really even to Paul himself. So he took note last time of the fear of Peter, all right? And be reminded again that the fear of man brings a snare. So don't let the fear of the opinion of someone else change your trust in the truth of the word of God, all right? So take note of that. Number two, here we go, moving on. Take note of this as we continue and finish our message this Wednesday, this evening. It's number two, this. I want to see Paul's fussing, okay? Peter's fear, number two, Paul's fussing. Now, when I say fussing here, I don't mean Paul is pitching a fit like a toddler or that he is complaining, all right, or, or anything like that. But rather what I mean when I say Paul is fussing here, here's what he's doing. He's fussing at Peter. He is rebuking the apostle Peter. That's what he's doing. He's rebuking him. Look again at verse number 14. And the Bible says, And when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of the Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Verse 15. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of a law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of a law. For by the works of a law shall no flesh be justified. But if we, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For, I, for if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law am dead to law that I might live unto God. Listen, at this moment, Paul is rebuking Peter, rebuking him, setting him straight, if you will, for his hypocrisy, for his inconsistency, for his lack of understanding of truth, really going against the truth, for, for rebuking, rebuking him as well as the rest as well, for allowing man to control his actions instead of God and his word controlling their actions. He's rebuking Peter. That's what he's doing. Now, what does it mean to rebuke? Okay. Rebuke means this. It means to express sharp disapproval of. It means to reprimand. And no doubt this is what Paul did. But in this context, in his context, it wasn't just to show where Peter was wrong. It's not just to tell Peter was wrong. There are some folks who just love to tell you how wrong you are and leave it at that. Okay, they, I guess that's their spiritual gift to the church, all right? But anyway, some folks just love to tell you how wrong you are and then walk away. But here in this context, this is not exactly the rebuking that Paul is doing. Yes, he is telling Peter how wrong he is, absolutely. But he's not leaving Peter to sulk in his wrongness, if that even makes sense, okay? But he is telling him how wrong he is, but with the intention of correcting that. Not just leaving him there. Here's where you're wrong, but here's, here's what's right. Here's what's wrong, but here's what's right. Here's what you're doing, but here's what you need to do. You see, he's rebuking him in a gracious and really godly way. This is a real, true purpose of rebuke, is to get someone back on the right path, to correct that behavior. And that's exactly what Paul is trying to do, even to the mighty, great apostle Peter. But take note how Paul rebuked. All right, first he did this way. He rebuked through inquiry. What do you mean by that? Here's what I mean. He asked questions, all right? He asked questions. 
let me ask you a question, all right? When you were a kid and you got into trouble, did your parents oh, ever ask questions? For instance, you did something so dumb and they come up to you and say, why in the world did you do that? <laughs> what were you thinking? And most of the time when I got that, that question, my answer was, I wasn't, you know. <laughs> I'm sorry, I wasn't thinking. Obviously you weren't. But they're inquiring, right? They're, they're questioning you, trying to get you to think. And then maybe you, you try to give a, a smart aleck answer to why you did what you did, really trying to cover up the error of your way and come up with a lie or an excuse. And then they say this, boy, you think I'm stupid or something? That's a question. Kids that you never answer. You just sit there quietly and take your rebuke, okay? You never answer that question, ever. I'm trying to save your life here, all right? But, uh, but questions, why, why do they ask questions like that? It's not just because they don't know what to say or forgot what they need to say. No, it, it, those questions like that should do this. Stir the conscience. Show us what we did wrong and maybe think about how we can correct it and make it right. I like what one person said. Questions stir the conscience, but accusations harden the will. Questions stir the conscience, but accusations harden the will. So questions, listen, they're very good and they're very important. This is what Paul is trying to do here. He is trying to stir the conscience of Peter, Barnabas, and the rest that were there that were not Gentiles. The rest of the Jews there, using these questions and causing them to think, stir them up, stir up their thinking. Stir up their thinking about what? About what's right and about what's wrong. To stir up their thinking about their traditions versus truth and which one's better and which one's right. He's trying to stir up their thinking, trying to get them to see the error of their way and get them back on the right path. He asked several questions here. Paul did. Why? To get them back on the right path. Not to just accuse them, not just to point his long finger at them and accuse them, but to get them corrected. That's why I asked questions. Okay, how did he rebuke? Well, he did it through inquiry. Oh, man, that's a hmm. Tongue-tied through inquiry. How do you say it, Kenny? Help me out. You're smarter than me. Inquiry. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Kenny. All right. All right. That's the last time I'm saying that word. Okay. <laughs> so number one, through that. Number two, he rebuked this way. He did it doctrinally. Doctrinally. Okay. He corrected Peter, listen, by pointing Peter to the truth of the Scripture, by pointing people to the truth of God. By, by pointing Peter to what he knew it was right. Here's what he said. Look at verse 16. Knowing, there it is, knowing. He said, you know this. You know this truth, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of a law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. He, see, he is using doctrine here, pointing him back to Scripture. But there's one word in particular that he is using to get his point across. And he used this word four times in these two verses. Anybody want to take a guess what it is? I'll give you three seconds. Two. Justified. That's right. He used the word justified four times in these two verses. But what does it mean? What does justify mean? It means this. 
It means a person or persons believed to be worthy or redeemed. That's what justified means. A person or persons believed to be worthy or redeemed. Now, how does a person believe to be worthy? How does a person believe they can be redeemed? Well, there's really only two ways when you boil it all down. Of a person, how they, at least their thought of how they believe they can be worthy or believe they can be redeemed. The first thought is this, number one, by works. And in our text here, those that were of the circumcision would teach that very thing, that you would become worthy or redeemed through a process, a process of keeping the law, which meant keeping dietary restrictions. Again, in this, in this context of this, that's what the, these, those of circumcision were having a, a hissy fit over because Peter was eating with the Gentiles, right? But keeping a set of rules and a set of regulations, dietary laws, keeping the covenant ritual of circumcision, uh, keeping the Sabbath days, keeping all the festivals, all these things, keeping the law would make you worthy, would make you redeemed through a process. This is how you'd be redeemed, according to them. So basically, this is a works-based salvation by them. That's what it would be. But my question that I have to have for those that base salvation on works is this, how much work is enough? How much of the process is enough? What if you die halfway through the process? Is it just, oh, well, you tried, better luck next time, even though there's not going to be one? I mean, how much is enough? How much, how much works is enough? And if someone else had more works than you, would they be more of a justified person than than you? I mean, I got all kinds of questions. So there's no way to accurately answer those questions. So a works-based justification, listen, is no justification at all, period, because you can't do enough. I've heard people say this. Uh, I ask people, well, 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 when you get to heaven, what are you going to tell Jesus? What would you, what would you say to Jesus, the, the reason you would get into heaven? And I've had people say this. Well, I just hope that my good works outweigh my bad. And then, surely he'll let me in. No. That's not how it works. Because it's not enough. Works are not enough. You can't work enough. It's not going to work at all. Works don't work, all right? Not for salvation and justification. So, justification is not based on what we can do, but rather on what Christ has done. It's through his death, burial, and resurrection. And because of what Jesus has done and not what we can do, justification is this way. Look again at verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of a law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of a law. For by the works of a law shall no flesh be justified. That's pretty plain, is it not? The Bible says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now understand something. Understand something. Peter knew this truth. He knew this doctrine. So by Paul rebuking him doctrinally, Peter knew exactly what he was talking about. That's why Paul came down a little heavier on him. When he withstood Peter to the face and he rebuked Peter to the face personally. 
because Peter knew better. Here, here's what Paul even said to Peter. Look again at verse, uh, verse 16. He says this uh, about middle way through. He said this, even we, we, he's, he's talking person to person, Peter to Paul, we, he's saying we, me and you, Peter, me and you, me and you. We have believed on Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. Peter, you know this, man. You know this. He's rebuking him doctrinally. So doctrinally and simply here, before we move on, here's what justification is, all right? Justification is this. It is the act of God whereby he declares the believing sinner righteous in Jesus Christ. That is a simple, simple definition as I can find. For the believer, it is the act of God whereby He, that's God, declares the believing sinner righteous in Jesus Christ. And how do we get how we become righteous to declare righteous is through the Lord Jesus Christ by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. So not only did He do uh, rebuke him doctrinally, but He did this way. All right, He rebuked him publicly. Verse fourteen. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all. Now, when he rebuked them publicly, this is not always the right way to rebuke someone. Actually, it's very rare, very rare way to rebuke someone. But since Peter was doing what he was doing publicly, Paul had to do what he did publicly. Besides, there's a lot at stake here, instead of, and not just the feelings of Peter, by the way, but a lot at stake here. When Peter was doing what he was doing, the gospel was at stake. Uh, the church, their Antioch was at stake. The, the Gentile believers at this moment was at stake. So much was at stake at this moment. So Paul had to respond quickly and appropriately. And yes, he even did it publicly. So we see these two things as we continue down through the scripture here. We see that Peter feared. He feared those of circumcision. And because of that, it caused him some very silly things. And so Paul got in his face. <laughs> and he fussed. He rebuked him. And then last, I want to see this. I want to see Paul's focus. What was it that was going to help Paul stay the course? What was it that was going to help Paul to contend for the faith, to defend and declare the gospel, even in the face of these that were of the circumcision, those Judaizers, even in the face of them, even in the face of these brethren that he loves dearly, was going to help him to stay the course and, and him to truly declare and defend the gospel even in front of him. What was it? What was it that was not going to let him, rather, to fear those or have those others control him, not let the fear of the brethren stop him, the fear of rebuking Peter stop him? What was it that was going to keep Paul on the right path? What's this? Look at verse 20 and 21. Here's Paul's focus. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who, gave, who, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Five times in those two verses, he refers to the Lord, refers to Christ, refers to God. Five times. So his focus was this. It was upon the Lord Jesus Christ that was going to keep him going forward and not allow the fear of man to control him, not allow the Judaizers and their opinions and their traditions to, to intimidate him and control him. No, he was going to keep focused upon Christ and the truth and the faith in Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to focus upon him. Understand something. In this moment, I believe that 
it would have been a letdown, okay? That Peter would have been a, a letdown. Peter would have been a disappointment. He would have been, uh, it had been frustrating to see Barnabas, the man that you have traveled with and would travel with some more, it would be frustrating to see him pull away as well and be called away with their dissimulation, their hypocrisy. Remember that word? We talked about last Wednesday. It would see him act the hypocrite too. It had been frustrating. It had, been, it, it had let, let him, maybe let him down a little bit. But I want to tell you something. People are going to let you down. I don't like it either. Peter, he let him down. Barnabas, he let him down. These other, other Jewish believers that were there, he let, they let Paul down. And Paul could at this moment, did the same thing, by the way. He could have saw Peter go away from the Gentiles, cave in to the, to the, to the intimidation, cave in to the brethren, and he could have just done the same thing, went with Barnabas and Peter and the rest of the Jewish people. Why? Because he was Jewish too. But he didn't. Why? He was focused upon the truth. And upon the Lord, his eyes were upon Jesus Christ. Understand something, people can let you down. But keep your eyes focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard someone give the excuse why they, they uh, don't go to church or no longer go to church or whatever? You ever heard this excuse that, that they're not going to church anymore because, well, there's just a bunch of hypocrites down here. Anybody ever heard that? I've heard a couple times. Or I've maybe heard people say, I'm not going back to church because, well, so it's going to hurt my feelings. I just ain't going back. I've heard those things before. And each time, my, my mind, I, I don't like church church. I don't, I don't recommend it, okay? We shouldn't do that. It's never on purpose that I know of. I've been around some of that. It never feels good. But I'm reminded in those moments that I don't want to focus in on the hurt. I don't want to focus in on the people that disappointed me. I don't want to focus in on the folks that may have frustrated me. But rather, I want to keep my eyes upon the Lord. I want to keep my eyes upon the Lord. Well, if we, if we allow ourselves to be focused on the hypocrisy, then yeah, you'll stop. If you allow yourself to be focused in on someone else's sin that they did to you, yeah, you'll, you'll stop. But if you keep your eyes upon Jesus, you're not going to let those things stop you. You're not going to let people stop you. Keep your eyes upon the Lord. Focus upon Christ. Here's, here's what the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 3. After he talked about the great host that was before us, the great cloud of witnesses, all those in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith chapter that we call it. Here's what he said. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. Wherefore, seeing we're also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. How? How do we do that? How do we run the race set before us? Here's how we do it. How do we stay on track, and how do we keep from falling off track? Here's how we do it. Verse number 2, Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, for consider him. Consider who? Consider Jesus. Look, look to Jesus. Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. So Paul knows something about being weary and having the temptation to be uh, faint in your, in, in your mind, to quit. He has that temptation, no doubt, to his life. But what kept him going on in the race, what kept him going forward, it was his focus was upon Jesus Christ. That's his focus. This evening, as we close, let me ask you this. What is yours? What is yours? 
Can I encourage you to keep your eyes upon Jesus Christ? He will never let you down. He will never disappoint you. He will never hurt you. He can be nothing but good. Keep your eyes upon Jesus.